It kind of went a little bit viral. Canberrans are the best, but that point aside... I don't think the university is going far enough. It was scary. It was really scary. Cut your hair, put on a suit and infiltrate. It was always, there's nothing we couldn't achieve just because of gender. This is Caught in the Act on 2XXFM. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another week of Court in the Act. My name's Josh Begby. I'm hosting with you tonight, and we have a first-timer here in the studio, Soph Yates. Hello. How are you going? Yeah, really good, thanks. Stoked to have you here, Soph. No, it's good to be here, too. Thank you for having me. Yes, good. Uh, so, a light team tonight, just Soph and I here with you, but we've got a really good show coming up. Uh, we'll introduce Soph, get to know her a little bit. Also, a piece from Zoe Halstead coming up later in the show, and a replay of a conversation I had with Alex Sigley. He's an ANU student who runs tours to North Korea. We thought it'd be a good time to hear that conversation again. That and plenty more on this week's Caught in the Act. You're listening to 2XFM, people-powered radio. Now, you've heard her voice already, but here in the studio is a wonderful first-timer, Sophie Yates. Hello, Josh Begby. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, customary here on the show. We've got to get to know you somehow mm-hmm. for our listeners. Um, so, Sophie, I guess, take it away. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I'm, I'm at university here um, in Canberra. I moved here about five years ago, and it's now approaching the end of my time here, so I'm getting a little bit nostalgic. Um, so I study law, um, work, I don't know, one day a week um, and try and spend as much time as I can now that it's getting warmer outside in Canberra. Mm, wonderful. Now, this isn't your first time sort of dipping your toes no. in the journalism pool. <laughs> no, I did a little bit um, with the student newspaper um, earlier on at uni. So I was um, writing um, a few news stories um, in, as a first year and then did a bit of news editing in my second year and hopped on the editorial board um, the year after that and had a really fun experience getting to know all the budding journalists mm-hmm. um, at ANU. Um, and I loved that. Um, but I had to had to sort of put it to one side um, to keep going with uni, unfortunately. So it's nice to be, albeit in a different medium, Josh. I haven't done radio before. Oh, well. So. <laughs> we're very excited to have you here on the show. I know you've got a good nose for a story, so we're excited to see. You know, if you can write it, you can probably talk about it too. I hope so. We'll see. This is the test. Now, it wouldn't be a caught in the act introduction if we didn't embarrass you somehow. So okay, great. What's your favourite thing about Canberra? Being a young person in Canberra. Oh, it's not even embarrassing. I really hate it when people not Canberra. I think it's um, it's gorgeous <laughs> here. No, I love I love that you can drive for ten minutes and be um, just totally out in the open. Mm. Um, I was riding along the old federal highway last week, and all the waddle is out right now, and it's just beautiful. You're going over these undulating hills with these bright sprays of yellow. Um, it's just really picturesque and I think that's something I'll always cherish about Canberra, just the beautiful scenery Mm. and of course the great company, but you know, the plants are pretty good too. And the occasional snow. (laughs) And the occasional snow. That was a bit of a shock, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, all right. Welcome to Court in the Act, Sophie Yates. I'm really excited to hear what you have to do and I'm sure our listeners are as well. But now here's a song for you. This is Dopus. He's a Canberra electronic artist. Uh, This is the song, Are You Listening? Jumping, 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 jumping
Young people are often typecast as risk takers and therefore considered to be more likely to use drugs. But is this really the case in Canberra schools? Zoe Halstead sat down with two teachers from a South Canberra college and their year 12 students to find out how drugs are affecting them and whether they have, have, have had an impact on their classrooms. To be honest, not as much as when I was doing my teacher training I thought that there would be. A lot of emphasis was put on it in teacher training but going into teaching I haven't noticed it anywhere near as much as I thought that I would. Um, not so much at my current school. I worked at a high school before this and it was a lot more of an issue then. Um, and then it was difficult, I think, because that was kind of my first proper experience of teaching and I didn't really know kind of the best way to handle that. So sometimes when that does happen, it's a little bit kind of frightening yeah. if you have kids and it is a difficult um, decision to make if you have kids who are coming to school um, under the influence of something and you don't know what it is you kind of have to make that judgment call you know do we keep them in the school or in the classroom because you know that they'll be safe in this environment or do you send them home um, if you send them home are they going home is someone going to be there to look after them that sort of stuff so that was a bit tricky for me. I genuinely thought that I'd be sort of dealing with these kids who, and I'm not saying that we, I haven't dealt with kids who have used drugs, but I think that there's a weird maturity that's kind of floating around where maybe they did it when they were younger and have realised that they don't need to do it, or I suppose the kids that I work with are really into their studies mm. and so kind of throw themselves into that instead. Do you know of many people your age that are doing drugs? Um, I know of two people that do them like... Um, consistently on like a weekly basis and then some other people I know have like done them. Um, and do you know if anyone does drugs at school? Um, not on school grounds but I know there's like apparently places near the school. Yeah, does that worry you? Um, I, I went to a high school where we had three drug busts in the four years I was there around like the campus so it's like kind of used to it but I, I don't think it's good especially in a school environment. And did you find that when students did come to school under the influence that that had an impact on other students at the um, school? I think so. Like, I think it's, it's definitely disruptive um, and obviously depending on like the, the way that they're affected by those substances, it changes how they behave. So obviously some kids, you know, that very stereotypical kind of stoner um, you know, they're really laid back, they might laugh at some stuff that's really not that funny, but they'll just kind of sit there and not really do anything, and they're not really disruptive to anybody because they're just kind of chilling back. But depending on, yeah, what students are kind of affected by or if there's other stuff going on that, you know, might affect them differently, they can be really kind of really agitated and hyperactive and quite disruptive and loud and all that sort of stuff so that's a bit difficult to deal with. Do you know why people do it? The two people I, I know that do weed a lot is because like they can't take the um, stresses that are like from school and then home lives and things. Do you think people your age face a lot of stress from school and home 
No, I think that especially with like um, the financial situation we're put in, and then like how competitive, um, like just getting into like a university is as well. It's just like a whole lot of pressure on people that still aren't even like proper adults yet. Do you think it's possible that the kids that are interested in drugs are maybe not coming to school as often? That's that's exactly what I was about to say. Given the year group that we like, I work with they often have sort of started to opt out of school and so the ones that we get in the classroom tend to be the motivated ones, the ones who know where they're going and there is this kind of drop-off of the ones who maybe don't think that school is for them and that that's probably more characteristic of that population. It doesn't concern me in the way that I think that, you know, all the students are on drugs and it's kind of it's this epidemic. I, really, I don't think it's um, kind of as prevalent as maybe the media would kind of have us believe that it is. But it does worry me in, in to the extent that kind of like part of my job is wanting my students to be safe mm. and being and like having that um, I guess added risk that's always something that's in the back of your mind like you know I always get worried when my students get their peas stuff like that mm. just because you know you kind of do have that like parental instinct that kind of switches on and you're like you are now kind mm. of a fully fledged adult you're going to nightclubs for the first time you can drive please don't drive and drink at the same time, please don't drive and take drugs at the same time, all that sort of stuff. So yeah. it's always kind of in the back of my mind, I think. That was Zoe Halstead taking a look into the presence of drugs in Canberra schools. Uh, so I, I just want to pick up on a little point that Zoe made right at the end there mm. about how possibly the kids who are taking the drugs aren't coming to school. I wonder if that carries through to university. Yeah, it's funny because I um I uh, didn't have a similar experience at school and I really only became aware of people our age taking drugs at uni um, and they seem to like fly under the radar a bit or at least their drug use did. I, um, or they're able to maybe balance it. Yeah, perhaps that maybe um, maybe they've had practice at balancing it, maybe they're more um, mature in the way they um, sort of um, divide up their time between recreational drug use and um, studying. I, I have certainly found that um, I, I haven't been impacted at uni with people um, under the influence in the classroom in the way that Zoe seemed to say, or um, Zoe's um, interviewees seemed to talk about it. Um, affecting their classroom experience. Mm. I mean, that said, I have I've seen I've seen it both ways at university, I suppose too. And I do think at school, the kids I knew who um, I won't say all of them who took drugs, but some of them who took drugs, like that, that was definitely there. And I mean, I mean, as the teacher said, let's right, it's it's as they're growing up that it's such a disruptive time. They're not even adults yet. Yeah, um, it's it's hard and to take on that even that that extra burden. I found it really interesting that some of the uh, the um, in the interview they were talking about um, using it as a way to de-stress um, in high school. It's um, it's something that I guess people find like a really stressful time in their lives and certainly uh, that doesn't go away with university. So I wonder if people um, turn to it at uni, maybe a bit late to the game, but certainly want to just calm down a bit from like a, a big day. So, so in that way they use it strategically. So they do balance it as a way of actually just balancing themselves week to week. You're listening to 2XXFM, people-powered radio. Time for a song. Shoes 
That was Alex the Astronaut with her song, Rockstar City. I thought just to end the show, I'd replay your conversation that I had with a guy called Alex Sigley. He's an ANU student who runs tours, educational tours to North Korea, and has a really interesting perspective on how we should see this controversial country. I mean, I guess like a lot of people, I've always been quite curious. You see a lot of things in the media about North Korea that portray it as kind of, I mean, on the one hand, dangerous, but also kind of quirky and unique sort of place. But it wasn't until I was studying at the university in China and I got to know some of the, um, the North Korean official exchange students from North Korea. And you know, I, befri- I befriended this one guy. And that's, you know, just getting to know like an actual person, you know, and putting a human face to it, that really piqued my curiosity in the country. So how long was it before you first stepped foot on North Korean soil? The first time I went was in 2012. Back then I went through an NGO sort of group that did um, sort of educational tourism and academic exchange in North Korea through those first couple of trips. So I got to know some people in the travel industry over in North Korea. That was something that led me to start Tongil Tours. And that's 
basically our focus, which is uh, educational tourism to North Korea. So for you, it was that personal connection that you were talking about in China that you, you met a North Korean person and you started to put some context behind you know, the myths and the stories that we hear about in the media of that country. How easily do those connections come about on your tours? It's, it's my understanding that it's quite regulated and you might not necessarily meet that many genuine Korean people uh, as a tourist in North Korea. Yeah, I think that, that's an interesting question because I think that to some extent that's true. But then to some extent, I think it's also exaggerated. So when you're going about in North Korea, it is true that you have to follow a set itinerary. And every, every place that you go to on the itinerary, it must be approved by the local tourism authorities. And so you basically, you've got a fairly limited, although growing, list of places that tourists can visit. So in that sense, it is limited. And then you also, when you're outside, you have to have two guides with you, two Korean guides. Um, now, are these guides the, or guards? Guides, guides, not okay. guards. So you no, do no, get to have no. a conversation with these people at least. And, yeah, know, it, yeah. I, and, I imagine that people yeah. that the government has specifically thought could, you know, could handle speaking to foreigners, but at least that's someone. Yeah, so you know, in, in a lot of these reports, and I find a lot of the reporting on North Korea in the Western media to be a bit sensational, and in a lot of these reports they're characterized as government minders who are there to watch your every move and spy on you. But I'm not sure if that's really true. I mean, at least the ones we work with are very young. They're in their early 20s. They graduated from the University of um, Foreign Studies in Pyongyang, and they studied, um, they studied English language as their major. And, you know, on paper, they are they are guide. They, they work for one of the local North Korean travel companies, and they are guides in that travel company. And their primary role is to, to translate for you, to explain, you know, what you're seeing, um, organize logistics and things like that. I'm not denying that there's any possibility that they have to write reports and things like that, but I think that, you know, it's not as severe as people think it is. Also, when you are outside, when you are, like, say, you know, at a lot of these places that you can go to, some of them are these sorts of like museums that I kind of you just go to and you just hear this hagiography uh, about Kim Il-sung and how like, you know, when he was 12, his father gave him two pistols and said, liberate the fatherland. And then he went off and, you know, did that. <laughs> but then there are other places where you can go to where these are places where the genuine North Korean people go to and you can meet them there. You know, for example, there's a place called Moranbong Park in Pyongyang. And if you go there on Sunday, you just see loads of people. Mm. They like to go out, have a cup, drink a bit of soju, sing songs and dance. And we've had lots of tour groups to go there and they get pulled in by these people and they end up singing and dancing with them and you know, have, having, a, having a good time and, and actually getting, you know, getting some interaction with people. Never could have imagined that you'd get to have a sing and a dance and maybe drink some soju. Now, you've had a, an opportunity not just to be there as a tourist, but also to study there. How is yeah. that experience different? Were you exposed to uh, another side of North Korea again? Yeah, this was one of the first times that they had people from like Western, for want of a better word, uh, Anglophone countries studying there. And it was really interesting first to interact with the teachers and then also to um, learn Korean through, through the North Korean textbooks. Yeah. How, how do they differ? How are the North Korean textbooks different to ones that you would have seen in South Korea? The language is very different. So South Korean is full of English loan words, um, and North Korean has fewer of those, and the dialect is different as well. But then, yeah, in terms of the content, it's really different. There's ideology as well. 
So, for example, I remember one text where I think the protagonist is a, she's a foreign woman and she's talking to her driver. They're talking about the spring scenery. And the driver says, oh, you should go to Mangyongdae. There you can see the, the most beautiful spring scenery. The, the, the foreigner goes, oh, Mangyongdae, right, I've heard of that. That's the birthplace of the great leader, Kim Il-sung, you know. Ah, there it is. And, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, before know. then, it was just a beautiful, I, I could have read that in a French textbook. Alex Sigley is joining me here on Court in the Act this afternoon, and he's telling me about his time over in North Korea. Now, Alec, what was, it, what was Australia perceived to be in North Korea? You know, in stark contrast to South Korea, North Korea, they know very little about Australia. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy to imagine why. They don't have internet, so you just can't get on and do any research about it. And also, Australia does not, does not have much exchange with North Korea. You know, they do bring up things like kangaroos. They know koalas. Uh, they know the Sydney Opera House. Oh, that's fascinating. I wonder how yeah. those images make it through. I've seen some of the textbooks, school textbooks. They will have kind of yeah, texts that introduce these sorts of things. Alec, I have to ask you, the name Otto Warmbier has been in the news recently. Uh, for those who don't know, he was an American student who was uh, held captive in North Korea after sealing a poster as a souvenir. As someone who has studied in North Korea and spent some time there, what's your reflection on this? Um, first of all, it's, it's tragic. You know, a young man has, um, has lost his life. But all the details haven't come out about what exactly happened to him yet. So I wouldn't be too hasty in you know, drawing conclusions about that. We do because, know that it was, it was this, this poster. That right. was the, the excuse, at least, for the arrest. For those of us who haven't been to North Korea, what I really want to understand is how egregious was that act? Was that, you know, was stepping into a restricted zone, um, is this something that he just stepped into, you know, opened a wrong door and wouldn't have known? Or, or is this something that... When you're over there, you're, you're quite aware that that's something... I think that the poster, obviously taking the poster, he would have known. But being in a restricted area, how, how culpable should he be for that? The, this hotel is a hotel that I've stayed in quite a few times. And on the elevator, it's got, you know, it goes one, two, three, and then I think five. I can't remember which floor it is exactly, but there's a floor missing from the elevator. People started to notice that, and it started to become a bit of like almost this like kind of mythical thing among some of the, the tourists visiting. There were videos as well on YouTube where people were speculating about it and also videos where people, where people go in and they kind of like, they, they shoot what's there. And, you know, people are speculating. It's all the usual stuff, like it's a place where they survey people and things like that. But from what I saw, it looks like your typical, it's a typical North Korean office. So, I mean, it's got propaganda and slogans and, and all that. And you can only access it if you go up the staircase and you go through a door that says staff only. All right. So, Alec, you've written about North Korea before. I've been reading your blogs a little bit. And one of your paragraphs that you've written is titled Separating North Koreans and North Korea. Could you talk about how important it is to imagine like the people that are in this country as different to the institution? It doesn't matter where you are in the world. You know, all governments get up to things which are, I guess you could say are a bit unsavory. You know, I don't want people to judge me personally based on, you know, how the Australian government, for example, is dealing with refugees or anything like that. For some reason, when we think about North Korea, we very rarely think about it that way. It's all just one monolithic thing. Part of that is because we have so little experience of North Korea and North Korean people. For that reason, I think it's um, very important for people to go over there and you know, interact with people and engage and put human face to the country. Alex Sigley there, an ANU student who was talking about his humanising experience with North Koreans. 
That's all the time we have for this week on Court in the Act. My thanks to Sophie Yates for joining me here in Thank the studio. Thank you for having me. <laughs> A pleasure. Um, join us next week at Tuesday at 6.30. Same time, same place here on 2XXFM. You know you can always catch up on the podcast, get us on Facebook, Twitter, all that sort of stuff. Um, but for this week, I'm Josh Begby signing off. Have a good night.